Please open your Bibles with me to Psalm 24, the 24th Psalm, and please stand for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 24, these are the words of God. The Psalm of David, the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and all those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor nor has sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Selah. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you everlasting doors. And the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Let us pray once more. Eternal God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, give us your Holy Spirit, who writes the preached word into our hearts. May we receive and believe it, and be cheered and comforted by it, now and into eternity. Glorify your, word, glorify your word in our hearts and make it so bright and warm that we may find pleasure in it. Through your Holy Spirit, think what is right and by your power, fulfill the word. For the sake of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. If we were to consider uh, the various events and the earthly ministry of our Lord, uh, we would have no trouble determining what is the most important. If we were to think of those four major events, the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension, we would know that the most important of those is the resurrection. We know this because the Apostle Paul himself tells us such in 1 Corinthians 15. He said that the doctrine of the resurrection is the most important. But if we were to consider of those four major events in our Lord's life, which is, well, which receives, we might say, the least attention, it would be the ascension. We remember the incarnation every year in December when even the current of men's thoughts, believers and unbelievers, is drawn to the birth of our Savior. The crucifixion and resurrection are also memorialized for us year over year and when we celebrate our Lord's Passion and Easter Sunday with the resurrection. These are even brought to our minds every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. But the ascension... It may be years before a church considers 
the ascension. And that's where our attention will be brought today. For this psalm is a psalm of the ascension. The events that it captures are those surrounding the ascension. Well, we want to at least start with the historical account given to us of the ascension. It's given to us in two places. At the tail end of Luke's Gospel, in Luke's Gospel chapter 24, and in Acts chapter 1. And I'll just read verses 6 through 11 in Acts 1. Therefore, when they had come together, that is the disciples, they asked him, that is Christ, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Well, that is the historical account of the ascension. But we also know that the ascension is important doctrinally and theologically for us. And I think can be summarized in the threefold office of our Lord and Savior. You remember that it is the office of prophet, priest, and king. Well, consider first the ascension and its importance to the office of prophet. Oftentimes, when we think of prophet or prophecy, our minds tend to go to what we might call foretelling. Foretelling of something that is to be done in the future. And we know that this is the test. We've read it here today. The test of a true prophet. If it comes to pass, then this prophet is true. But the majority of the work of the prophet is in foretelling. Thus saith the Lord, bringing the word of God to us. In the ascension, the Lord set in motion the coming of the Holy Spirit, who would, in behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ, execute that office of prophet. Remember that all of the New Testament was written after the ascension, and we have it for us here today. The Holy Spirit comes with his gifts for the church, the body of Christ. God had determined that the physical presence of Christ would be replaced by the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence in the believers. The Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son enables the prophetic ministry of Christ in the church. As our Lord himself told us, the Holy Spirit convicts of sin and righteousness and judgment, that he is the spirit of truth and guides us in all truth. He speaks only what he hears, he tells what will come, and he glorifies Christ. And he takes 
what is Christ's and declares it to us. This is noted for us by our Lord in John 16, verses 7 through 15. But not only does he do that, the Holy Spirit equips the church by empowering the gifts of Christ that Christ himself gave to the church, primarily pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, and for edifying the body of Christ. The ascension set in motion the coming of the Holy Spirit. But we also see in the, uh, the office of priest, Jesus Christ is our great high priest, and the sacrificial service of our great high priest was completed upon the cross. Remember, he said, it is finished. But Christ's high priestly intercessory service began with the ascension. Although Christ is not physically here with his people today, he is no less concerned for them and no less active on their behalf. John tells us that we have one advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, in 1 John 2, 1. Paul tells us in Romans 8, 34, that Christ, who died and rose again, is even now at the right hand of God and makes intercession for us. But it is in the office of king to which the ascension particularly points to. First of all, we see Christ's exaltation and glory. The ascension signifies his exaltation and return to his heavenly glory. With the ascension, Jesus assumes his rightful place of authority and honor at the right hand of God. And where he is given that name, which is above every name, that name of Lord. We see this in Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord, that is Yahweh, said to my Lord, that is Adonai, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Both Yahweh and Adonai were always reserved for God. Secondly, in the ascension, we see Christ's divine authority and power. He is the King of kings. And Lord of Lords. All authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. And he is now ruling over all creation. We can see this in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, where we read this I was watching in the night visions. And behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. We must remember that the title to which our Lord himself applied to himself most often was the Son of Man. And it was referring back to these verses. But this is also captured for us in Psalm 2. 
to which we read in verses 6 through 8. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. Daniel 7 and Psalm 2 depict the same event. One from a heavenly point of view, and then one from an earthly point of view. This is not a way off in future events. We must remember what it says in Revelation 11.15. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And if you hear Handel's Messiah going through your head, that's good. But thirdly, the ascension sets in motion the commissioning of the church for its ministry given in the Great Commission, which is captured for us in Matthew 28, where we read, Jesus said and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Yes, uh, this was given as part of Christ's earthly ministry. And yes, it was not fully kicked off until Pentecost. But the ascension sees the transition of the responsibility of the extension of his kingdom given to the church. You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria even to the ends of the earth. And we are to teach them to obey all that he has commanded. And lastly, the ascension has bound up in it the promise of the second coming. And I just want to pause for those who were in the teaching hour today. It, the providential working of God to bring it together where we mention the same things, the same theme as you have been studying this all year that the Lord has brought this here today. What a great God that we serve and worship. But Christ's return will be the consummation of his kingdom. And he will come in like manner, bodily and in the clouds. Well, let us turn our attention back to our text, Psalm 24. Psalm 24, along with Psalm 2 and Daniel 7, provide an Old Testament glimpse into the ascension. And you remember that when God gives these visions... Uh, to his people, whether Daniel or David. When it's repeated, it is confirmed that these events would surely come to pass, and they have come to pass. Uh, Some have indicated that this psalm was composed to commemorate the return of the Ark of the Covenant from Obed-Edom's house into Jerusalem. You remember the event. It was covered for us in uh, 2 Samuel 6, 12-15. There was a time of great rejoicing. David was dancing before uh, the ark. It was brought in. They were sacrificing. It came in. There was a great celebration. It was a type of triumphal entry. The ark of God was once again at the center 
of the people's dwelling, the capital, Jerusalem, signifying God's presence with his people. Our psalm can be divided into three parts. Verses 1 and 2 glorifies the one and only true God, the creator God, and speaks of his universal dominion. Verses 3 through 6 speak of those who may commune with their covenant God. And lastly, verses 7 through 10, it is the victory parade, the ascent of our champion, the true redeemer, into heaven. So let us take a look at verses 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. This is a breathtaking statement. This is nothing more than a straightforward declaration that the entire world, all the creatures that are in it, every square inch of the world, parenthetically also the universe, belong to our great and glorious God. The territorial disputes of men and nations come to nothing. The earth is the Lord's. The world and all that dwell therein. Not only the earth, the plants and the beasts, the birds and the fish, the flora and the fauna, everything that we find in nature, nature, but all peoples who live in the world. All peoples who live in the world. Their institutions, their governments, everything belong to the Lord. This fact is captured elsewhere in the Bible. I will call your attention to two of them. Exodus 19.5 Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. Why? For all the earth is mine. Also in Psalm 89.11 The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours. The world in all its fullness For you have founded them. And that very theme, the founding, the creation, is captured in verse 2. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Why is the earth the Lord's? Why do all animals, birds, trees belong to the Lord? Why do all men, the world round, belong to the Lord? Simply put, he made them. He is the creator God. We have the great creation account captured for us in Genesis 1. The six days of creation are an actual historical fact. But this is also noted elsewhere. For example, in Psalm 95, verses 4 and 5, it says, In his hands are the deep places of the earth, and the heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. In Psalm 100, verse 3, we have this. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, not we ourselves. I'll pause here for a moment. So much for evolution. Which says that the power to change is within us, that drives forward, no. For it is He who has made us, and not we ourselves. We are His people, and the sheep of His pasture. The Lord even confirmed this to Job. Remember when Job... Uh, had that audience with the Lord that he so wanted. God said this, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. 
And we know that it was by the Lord Jesus Christ that all things came to be. Paul captured that for us in Colossians 1, 16, For by him, that is Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth. Think back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, the earth was void, and the Spirit of the Lord hovered over the words, and then God said, there's the Trinity, right there in the beginning, the first verses of the Bible. That all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. We've already noted that the Lord Jesus Christ has lordship and kingship and all authority over the world and its inhabitants confirmed in Daniel 7 and in Revelation 11 and Psalm 2. But not only were all things created by Christ, but they're all sustained by him. For Paul continues in Colossians 1.17, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. So it wasn't just that he kicked us off at creation and then we run on our own steam. No, the Lord has not only created us, but it holds us and sustains us in all things. This is God's exhaustive sovereignty. All the fullness of the world belongs to the Lord. All material items, all men, even the thoughts of men. This is absolute sovereignty. Well, let's take a look at our next section. Verses 3 through 6. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Well, the question should naturally come to us. After looking at verses 1 and 2, knowing that God is supreme in all the earth, that he has uh, exhaustive authority and sovereignty, who may stand in his presence? Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may possibly come near to him? Well, David tells us, but before we get to that, I want to point out that when it says here, who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? The hill of the Lord, the mountain of the Lord, is a euphemism, we might say. A manner of speaking of the heavenly throne room of God. We know that the tabernacle and the temple were to be replicas, in a way, to the temple, the holy temple, the throne room of God. Now we are that temple. We're those living stones being firmly fit together. But there are several places that, are clarified, that clarify this in Scripture. God's hill is His holy hill. It is Mount Zion. We saw that in Psalm 2, verse 6. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. It is God's dwelling place. Psalm 3, 4 says, I cried to the Lord with my voice, and He heard me from His holy hill. It is where God's tabernacle is. Psalm 15, 1. Lord, 
Who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? And it is where God is worshipped. Psalm 99.9 Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill. For the Lord our God is holy. Not only is this where his dwelling place is, and it points to that heavenly throne room, but as we have just read, it is his holy hill. And our Lord is holy. So who may come into his presence? And I said, David answers that for us. He starts to answer it in verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn to seek Clean hands speak of the purity of one's outward actions. A pure heart refers to the purity of the inner man, the soul of the man, one that is holy and undefiled, undefiled by moral blemish. The inner life, the person's character, and the outer life, the person's actions, are absolutely, must be absolutely pure and clean. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means without sin. But before we go any further, I don't know if you've noticed this in your Christian walk, but when I was converted, I came into the Christian community and people talked about all sorts of words and terms and never defined them, never mentioned what they actually were. So what is sin? Well, the Greek word that is most often translated in the New Testament for sin, is harmartia, or harmartia, which comes from the world of archery, from bow and arrow. And it means when you pull the bow back and place the arrow on and release it, you miss the mark. You shot at the target and you missed. Well, that doesn't sound so bad, does it? And in the world of archery, it's not. But when it comes to God's law, it is the difference between life and death eternal life and eternal death. God requires absolute obedience to all of his laws. James 2.10 says this, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. Now we must hit the bullseye exactly in the middle, time and time again. But Paul tells us, that none of us have made it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay, but what is sin? Our Westminster Fathers defined it for us in the Shorter Catechism, and they asked in question 14, what is sin? Sin is any want of conformity to, unto, or transgression of the law of God. Want of conformity means sins of omission. God says, do this, and we don't. Sins of uh, the transgression of the law of God are sins of commission. God says, don't do this, and we do. And we know that the Bible says that sins of omission and commission are not limited to physical acts, but they also apply to words spoken, and thoughts. So that the person who David described that may approach the Lord, the man without sin, sins of action, sins of thought, sins of commission, sins of omission, 
must be completely pure. But he goes on to add more. In verse 4, he says this, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. The rest of of this verse here adds clarity to what he just said. We take it for granted when we talk about sin that we are talking about the one true God. But there are people who uh, hold fast to false religions and some of the practitioners may say by their standards that they have clean hands and a pure heart. Sadly, some of those in the Christian community may, like the rich young ruler, say, I have kept these things all of my life. But they may be relying on their own righteousness by their own definition. And there's a term for that. It's called idolatry. We're fond of saying that there are only two religions in the world, either the one true religion or works righteousness, true enough. But in fact, there is the same two, but said this way, the one true religion and idolatry. If you are not worshiping the Lord your God through his son Jesus Christ, you are an idolater. So the one who may ascend the hill of God has never veered from serving the Lord and nor sworn deceitfully. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of the man who may come into the Lord's presence was absolutely true. Absolutely in accord with the word of God. No blasphemy of any type has left his mouth. Well, that's the man described. That's the person who may ascend the mountain of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place. But when he gets there, what will he receive? Well, David gives us that in verse 5. He shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. The one who can ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in his presence. The one with clean hands and a pure heart who's never lifted up his soul to an idol nor has sworn deceitfully will receive blessing. Blessing here comes from the Hebrew word that literally means prosperity. He will receive a bounty of blessings and he will receive it liberally. He will not receive not a little but a lot. His cup will not just be full, but it will overflow. And he will receive righteousness, means to be declared right and just, vindicated. And all of these will come from his deliverer, the God of his salvation, the generous hand of his God. Well, let us move on to the last section, sections, uh, verses 7 through 10. But before we go there, our question is still the same. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? We've heard him described. We know what he will receive. But who is that one that may ascend the hill of the Lord? Well, David tells us in these last verses. 
But before we go there, I want to set the scene for you. In the ancient world, cities were surrounded by walls. And these walls were not palisades of logs like you might have seen in some frontier movie. But they were high and thick, made of stone and meant for defense. And around the city would be gates to which people may go out and come in. And we know in the Old Testament that some of these gates even bared the names of the, the use that they had. The water gate, for example, was the gate that people could go out and get water. The dung gate was where they could go out and take their trash and manure and put it outside of the city. But all the cities would have a main gate and a main point of entrance. And this main point of entrance would have, usually have two big, heavy doors that could be closed and barred for protection. And oftentimes there would be a gate. You've seen them in the uh, movies of the Middle Ages or in pictures. This big heavy gate that would drop down and it was made of wood and metal for protection. And in the ancient world, when a king won a great victory or a general, they would throw open the doors and lift up the gates and this parade would come in, much like we saw in Samuel with David bringing in the Ark of the Covenant. And there would be great celebration at that time. This is what's being recounted for us. The original hearers would see this and say, I know exactly what this is. So let us take a look at it. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors. Pause for just a moment. Everlasting doors obviously were not on Jerusalem. So clearly this is the heavenly Jerusalem where the Lord's throne room is. And the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors. And the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. So who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy, on his holy hill and in his holy presence? David says, it is the Lord. Strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. The Lord of hosts. You'll notice in your copy of God's word that Lord, in each of those cases, is capitalized. And we know that that generally points to Yahweh, the covenant name of God. So if there's any confusion, David has cleared it up. Well, you might say to yourself, wait a minute. Isn't the Lord already in heaven? Why would he need to ascend the hill of the Lord? And what victory celebration could this be referring to? Well, we must remember that in the New Testament is the old concealed. And in the Old Testament is the new revealed. And we can go to the New Testament and see exactly who this is from the, Lord, from the lips of our Lord himself. In John 3, 13, Jesus tells us, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven. That is, 
the Son of Man who is in heaven. Who is this King of glory? It is the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is the scene that it is depicting? The ascension of Christ into heaven, the God-man's triumphal entry into heaven. And what was the victory that he had won? It was the victory of the destruction of the works of the devil. 1 John 3.8 tells us, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Well, what are those works of the devil? Sin. And our Lord defeated the devil. And we know that Jesus defeated the devil by living a sinless life. That clean hands, pure heart, no idolatry, no deceit on his tongue. Remember the temptation of our Lord in the desert, which was accounted for us in Matthew 4, which I'll turn to here and and read for us. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, that great capturing of the temptation of Christ. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into a holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, it is written, again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceeding high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. There's a great contrast here between our first federal representative, Adam, and our second second federal head, the Lord Jesus Christ, the second Adam. Where Adam failed, Christ prevailed. Adam was in a garden. He was amply fed, and he was not alone. Christ was in the wilderness and had not eaten in 40 days and 40 nights, and he was alone. Adam, who was amply supplied, was tempted to eat, and he ate. Christ was tempted to eat, and he did not. Adam was tempted to disobey the word of God, and he did. Christ was tempted to disobey the word of God, And he did not. Adam was tempted to turn his back on God and commit adultery. And he did. Christ was tempted to turn his back on God and commit idolatry and did not. Notice also that Christ was tempted to conceive sin. 
that would have negated the pure heart to commit sin, which would have negated his, pure, his clean hands, and bow down and worship the devil, which would have been idolatry. But notice also that Christ, every time he refutes the devil, does so by quoting Scripture, quoting the Word of God, quoting the Word of truth. No deceit was found on his tongue. And not only that day, but every day before the temptation and every day after the temptation, Christ was fully obedient to God. And when the time was right for him to suffer death at the hands of the chief priests, the scribes, the Romans, and the people, just that very point, when the devil and his crowd thought they had Jesus right where they wanted him, let us kill the heir, and we will take the vineyard. It was just at that point when the ground was cut out from underneath them. For Paul tells us, if they had known that crucifying Jesus would lead and to ensure their defeat, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So not only his sinless life, but also his death, his death on the cross, but not only that, his victory was secured and underscored by the resurrection. Paul says this in Romans 1, he was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Remember when he said on the cross, it is finished. If he did not raise from the dead, he would have remained dead. And it would not be finished. But the resurrection confirmed that his work was acceptable to the Father. And was declared by power and the Holy Spirit by raising Christ from the dead. And Hebrews 2.14 says this, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Oh, death, where is your victory? O grave, where is your sting? This is the great victory that was run. It is the destruction of the works of the devil and breaking the bond of sin. Well, we see in our psalm the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of glory. But do you see yourself here? You may have noticed that I skipped verse 6. And in verse 6 we read, This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Now we know Jacob can refer to the man, Jacob, who was later renamed Israel, or it can refer to the people of God, the Israel of God. That's us. We're the Israel of God. But how do we partake in this? We might say, well, it's well and good. We know that Jesus deserved to ascend the mountain of the Lord. He was without sin. But how do we partake in that? Remember our reference to the Great Commission. And one way that we can take a look at our picture of our preparation, or, or rather, our participation in this is in baptism. Jesus said to, to his disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And if we turn our attention to Romans, chapter 6, verses 3 to 11, we read this. Or do you not know that as many of us 
as we're baptized into Christ, we're baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died has, died, has been freed from sin. <clears throat> now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead, indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This describes that great transaction. His righteous life. His clean hands, his pure heart, his total obedience to the Father, his pure and undefiled tongue. That's what we get. And our sins are given to him and nailed to the cross. But how do we participate in that great transaction? It is by faith. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Paul tells us in that Ephesians letter and David tells us that we do not have clean hands. We have dirty hands. We have impure hearts. We're filthy, idolaters, and blasphemous. But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love which, with, with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. This is the work of the sovereign God that we read about in the first two verses. And it is by faith that we partake in this. And it is by living by faith. And it is by seeking the Lord. Remember those who seek the Lord? We read that in verse 6. The generation who seek you Seek the Lord with all of your hearts and lean not on your own understanding. This is how we may partake in this victory. This is how we participate with the Lord. In this we can see all aspects of the main events of our Lord's life. We see the incarnation, Christ's virgin birth, his sinless life. We see the crucifixion, Christ's vicarious death upon the cross for our sins. We see the resurrection, the validation of Christ as victor, confirming the great victory over sin, the devil and death. And we see the ascension, the consummation of the great victory. We can truly turn and say with Paul, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you, O oh Lord, that you have given us 
the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That before you we are counted as having clean hands and a pure heart. Our former idolatries are remembered no more. And our blasphemous deceits you have removed far from us as the east is from the west. We are thankful, O Lord, and we ask that you would give us the grace to live each day by faith, seeking you with all our hearts, leaning not on our own understanding, but looking to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the captain of our salvation, the author and finisher of our faith, holding fast to him, that we would, not only in this life, but in the life to come, glory and say to you, thanks be unto you, our God, who has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.